mentioned that next week we're going to have an abbreviated service that's right there in your program. So we're going to have a service from 10 a.m. to 10.45 a.m. So if you're one of those people who like abbreviated services, you won't want to miss this. It'll be abbreviated worship and an abbreviated message. That's all the humor I have for this morning. We're going to take a break, 10.45 to 11 a.m., and then we're going to start the meeting at 11 a.m. And uh, we expect an hour, no longer than 90 minutes, but we're shooting for an hour. Uh, it'll be an important meeting for us. We uh, have one elder to reaffirm, Mike Minner. Uh, he volunteered to have a short term to get us started off with the stagger last year. And uh, we will be presenting a 2013 budget. We'll send that to you in the mail, um, those who are members, and uh, we'll get a talk about it next week. So that'll be an important meeting. And if, um, you know, husbands, you come and your wife stays home, we're going to be sunk because we have a 50% quorum required. So we need you. Uh, we're going to need our members there. We'll probably have enough reasons why people can't make it. So I hope that'll be a priority. In April 2012, the world reached the 7 billion population mark. It's estimated that out of the 7 billion, 750 million of those people um, have come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's 11% of the world's population. About 2.6 billion of those, or 38% of the world's population, have heard about Jesus Christ and the gospel and have not yet placed their faith in Christ. About 50% of the world population, 3.5 billion, have never heard about Jesus. And there isn't a realistic way soon uh, that they're going to hear. Um, there are about uh, 6,734 people groups. That's 60% of all people groups that have 0 to 2% that we would describe as evangelical. It is committed to Jesus Christ, God's Word, uh, that are born again. 0 to 2%. That means... Many have no churches, no Bibles, no mission agencies, no Christian literature. So, who's going to go to them? The word Jesus gave his church is great. Remember, he said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And uh, surely I will be with you even to the end of the age. So as we begin 2013, I believe God wants us as a church to sharpen our focus on the Great Commission, to sharpen our focus especially on evangelism. It's about reaching people. It's about understanding that lost people matter to God. Therefore, they matter to us. As we were worshiping, I was just reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew, uh, or what the scriptures say in Matthew 9, uh, 36 and 37, it says, When he, that is Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. It was the desire of Jesus 
that people be raised up to go and make disciples. That's got to be our desire and our heartbeat as well. And I want to sharpen that focus for us in 2013. So last week, we started a new series uh, called The Church Refocused, Revelation Chapter 1 through Revelation Chapter 3. And that's about seven letters to seven churches. And today we're going to continue with part two of this section. And this morning we're going to be in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, which is on page 849. So first of all, if you follow in your outline, uh, for our first point is meet the author. Meet the author. We met him last week, but we're going to meet him again this week. And uh, we were introduced to him. And his name was John, and his situation is in verses 9 and 10. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Scripture says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. John saying he's a companion. He's not putting himself up. He doesn't even use the word, I'm an apostle. I... Uh, have authority in the church. He said, I'm your I'm your brother. I'm, I'm part of your family. As a follower of Christ, I'm one of you. I'm a companion. I'm on this journey with you. And in the suffering and kingdom, because John has undergone some suffering. John has been a leader in the church at Ephesus, and um, John has experienced suffering because there has been a persecution in the church. And under two different emperors, Nero, uh, during the Apostle Paul's days and the Apostle Peter's days, and now later, around 95, 96 AD, John, is the, the emperor of the world, is Domitian. And there's a persecution going on in the church. In fact, uh, I, your brother and companion of the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus, this is what we get because we belong to Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is saying, I was exiled to Patmos, and that's an island. It's a prison colony. John is in prison on a colony 10 miles long and 6 miles wide. That's where they put people in the Roman Empire when they wanted to put them in prison. It's, a, it's an island off of Ephesus. That's where John is. That's where John will live and where he will do his writing as a prisoner. By the way, all of the other apostles, all of the other 12 are dead by now. John is the only one left. And tradition has it, um, they even tried to kill him by throwing him in a pot of boiling oil, but he lived and survived on the island of Patmos. We do know that's where he is right now. Um, verse 10 on the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet Trumpet on the Lord's day John says which day is that but we have a tendency to immediately go to well that must be Sunday probably not though the Lord's day is never mentioned in the Bible as Sunday it's a, it's a custom that we have Christians have been saying well the Lord's day means Sunday that's okay to use it that way Maybe not what John had in mind here. He's probably talking about 
another day, a future day, the day of the Lord is coming. And John has been projected into the future. How? On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. I don't know exactly what that means. It's more than walking in the Spirit. He was, he was uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was moved into a vision. The ability to see as a seer. He was able to see the future and to see the day. The day that's coming. The day that has judgment. And the day that has blessing. Revelation 4 through 19. Okay? He's able to see that. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So that's the situation we begin with that John is in in verses 9 and 10. We see his instructions in verse 11. Uh, the loud voice said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so this is John's job now. Um, He's supposed to write these things down. He's, he's going to give the this privilege of seeing the future with a vision, a supernatural uh, empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to see the future history of the world. And then he was to write it down, and he was to send it to the seven churches. So let's have a map, look at the map up here so you can see it. So, see the island of Patmos with the little circle? John is down there. And then he's supposed to send a letter to the seven churches. These are churches in Asia Minor. It starts with Ephesus. So next week we're going to look at this first letter, the letter to Ephesus. Then he's, he writes to Smyrna. The order is Sardis. Then up to Thyatira. And then he comes back down, oh, then to Pergamum. And then back down to Philadelphia and Laodicea. So those are the seven churches. This is Asia Minor in the first century. And, and you can see Achaia and Macedonia and Galatia off to the right. Now let's go to the next map. It's Turkey. The seven churches are in Turkey. And by the way, the bridge has sent two people to Turkey who are there right now. And they have an opportunity <laughs> As sent ones, um, Nick and Emily are there right now on behalf of Christ and on behalf of the bridge, and um, you can pray for them. Um, so we've met the author and his circumstances, and now verses 12 through 13 catch the vision. We're going to move through this quickly. Catch the vision. First, there's seven golden lampstands. Seven golden lampstands, Revelation 1, verse 12. I turned around, John says, to see the voice. I want to see where the voice was com coming from. I want to see the person that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I, I didn't see the person right away. I saw the seven golden lampstands. But where are those? Well, I can't tell you. It's a secret. But if you read ahead, you can find it in verse 20. Okay. So we see the seven golden lampstands. Next, we see someone like a son of man. This is in verse 13. Let's look at that, Revelation 1.13. And among the lampstands was, was someone, here's the person, like a son of man. We know a lot about this term. This identifies this person with Daniel 7.13. It also fits with the whole context here. 
the Messiah, one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man was the term that Jesus used most often of himself. And of course, that's exactly who this is. This voice, who is now standing among the lampstands, is the Son of Man, and his name is Jesus, and we'll watch this unfold. He's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. He's dressed like a priest in the Old Testament, but not just any old priest. He's a very unique, uh, glorious priest. Um, his head and his hair and his eyes. Verse 14. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were blazing like fire. His head and hair were white. And uh, I think this is significant of his purity and his holiness as a priest. His purity and his holiness. Uh, white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. We're seeing another side of Jesus that we, have, we did not see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Except three disciples at the transfiguration to see a little bit. Jesus pulled back uh, the veil a little bit so they could see his glory. Not like this, but just a glimpse, okay? And now John is seeing it sort of full on. He's beginning to see Jesus like he's never seen Jesus before. Remember that John is the son of Jeb Zebedee. John is the brother of James. John was one of the twelve. He was there with all the silly mistakes his disciples make. Jesus was his leader. And now he's seeing Jesus in all his glory. His eyes were like blazing fire. His eyes were penetrating. His eyes could see deeply. This is the all-knowing God who sees everything. And he is watching over his churches. Here are the seven. We're going to see. I just gave something away that you're not supposed to know until we get to verse 20. Um, he, he has piercing eyes. He, he has eyes that see. He has eyes that know what's going on. Not because he's going around slapping everybody's hands, but he is going to pay attention. And he is going to let his churches know when they get out of line and when they need to be pushed back uh, to to stay the course and to follow Christ. Verse 15, his feet, his voice, Revelation 1.15, his feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. Uh, bronze is relates to judgment. He is going to be a judge, and he's standing on a firm foundation of justice, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. John had the ability to see and to hear. The sounds probably had as big an impact on John as what he had to see. And he, he saw this person. <coughs> he saw Jesus in glory, in a glorious appearance. And he also hears Jesus speak. It's very loud, very strong, very powerful. He carries a lot of authority when he speaks. Verse 16, his right hand, his mouth, and his faith. And so jump to Revelation 1.16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. 
And this vision of Jesus, that's what chapter 1 is about. It's Jesus. And uh, in his right hand, this most prominent position, the most significant position, his right hand are seven stars. But what are they? Well, I can't tell you. It's a secret until we get to verse 20. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. That's a picture we've seen. That's a picture that comes forward in Revelation 19 at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he appears from heaven to come again a second time and he comes as a judge. And it's not that there's going to be a literal sword coming out of his mouth, but it's a symbol of the word of God. And by the way, if you study the Bible, when you go back to creation, Genesis chapter 1, it's the creator speaks, comes out of his mouth. It is the word of God, and he speaks. Stuff happens. In Revelation 19, when Jesus comes again, the word of God is going to come out of his mouth. He's going to speak, and stuff happens. And that's what this symbol is. Uh, out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword, which reminds us of Hebrews 4.12. We get a little warning here. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing soul and spirit. The word of God is a good tool. It's a sharp tool. It can be used like a surgeon's scalpel and help and remove and help us to be healthy. Um, his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And so... I don't know how much John makes out here. It's so bright. It's blinding. It is an awesome experience. Um, so, it's breathtaking and overpowering for John to see Jesus who is fully human and fully God. And he is no longer veiled by humanity. So we come now to verses 17 through 20. Listen to the words. Listen to the words. And we begin with an act of worship. Verse 17. When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is not what it, what, what it means to be slain in the spirit, by the way. There's only one uh, other time where scripture teaches about being slain in the spirit. It's Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira fell dead uh, in judgment. When God took their lives. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He's overwhelmed with this in this presence of Jesus Christ. And uh, there are times when it's just good to do what Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. And uh, John just uh, falls down. And that's an appropriate thing to do if Jesus shows up. It happened to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was seeking to put Christians to death. He was involved in persecution. And he encountered Jesus. And all he saw was light. But he knew who it was. A brilliant light. And it knocked him down. <coughs> he fell down. He was down in the presence of Jesus. Uh, comfort it also... Revelation 117, the next, then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. That's a pretty cool thing about Jesus. It's a pretty cool thing. You have you see this in the presence of angels, too. When 
some supernatural being shows up from God to bring a message, and usually the listeners or those present are very fearful. Perhaps John is trembling at this, at the presence of Jesus, and, and Jesus brings comfort. Don't be afraid. You're safe. You're saved. Your sins have been forgiven. I want you to know what's coming. I want you to understand the future. This is really important, and you're okay. You're going to be safe. Don't be afraid. And then identity revealed in verses 17 through 18, and, and Jesus says, just comes right out and says it to John, I am the first and the last. We were reminded, uh, he said last week, I am the Alpha and the Omega. That was the Greek alphabet, first letter, last letter. The idea is beginning and end. I am the eternal one, the first and the last. I am the living one. What, so what's the big deal about that? I was dead because I was nailed to the cross and I died. I was put into a tomb and I was there for three days and on the third day I was raised again and behold I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. I read that that, that last part I hold the keys to death and Hades. It really grabbed me. He is the one. He's represent authority. He wasn't standing there holding literal keys. They're symbolic. The picture is symbolic of authority. Jesus is the one who has authority of death and Hades. He is the one who has authority of physical death and spiritual death. Um, I hold the keys. He's the author of life, and he is the author of death. And you know what? I know this person. I know the one who holds the keys. I know the one who holds the keys to death. I know the one who holds the keys to life. Listen to what. Jesus said in John 15, 7 and 8. He says, if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and, I, and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I know this person. I'm in a relationship with this person who is the one who holds the keys to death. And I can ask. He says, if you remain in me, if you stay the course, if you walk with me, if you keep my word, you can ask. <coughs> this makes a world of difference when it comes to how do we do the Great Commission? Well, we've got to pray. We've got to ask. Who, who would you love to see come to faith in Jesus in 2017? We, we have to ask. We have to pray about God's work. And he wants us to be involved. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I, can we jump to John 14, 6? Keep going, keep going. There we go. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the, he's the author of life. He is the life. He is the way to that life. He's the one who has the keys to that life. And nobody is going to enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God 
apart from him. And you know him. You have a relationship with him. You can come boldly before the throne of grace in time of need. John, uh, Matthew 25, 31 and 32. Uh, we looked at this uh, this few months back. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. Now we have a little picture of the glory part, don't we? When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people, one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. There's going to be a judgment in the future. And we know the one who holds the keys. Next passage. Next slide. Then he will say, this is the very end, then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, and into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There is going to be a judgment. And God is going to hold people accountable for their lives. And God has given us an opportunity to make a difference, to have an impact. And the work that we do as a church is a matter of life and death. I can't think of anything more important in all the world to be involved in than to relate to a message of life and death. We've been given that as we are ambassadors. We are stewards of the message. Instructions are given to John in uh, verse 19. Write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So, John's job, he's a, he's a reporter. He's, a, he's an eyewitness to all of the future history. And he's supposed to write it down. And here it is. Right there is the outline to the entire book, to the book of Revelation. Next slide. Here we go. Outline of the book. What you've seen. Revelation chapter 1. The vision of Jesus Christ. Secondly, what is now? Revelation chapter 2 and 3. First century, the seven churches. Now, why did... Uh, we're going to talk about this, but why did God pick seven churches? I don't know. It's probably representative. There's probably application for all churches. But that's what's uh, now. First century, John's day. Number three. What will take place later? Revelation 4 through 22. It's the whole rest of the book. It's the day. Um, so we come to the interpretation. Finally, you've been waiting for the interpretation. And it's in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The end. That's the mystery. Mystery means it's never been revealed before. It's revealed right now. Revelation chapter 1, verse 20 to John. Seven stars are seven angels. Next slide. Seven stars are seven angels. Um, messages should be messengers. Okay? Seven angels or seven messengers to the seven churches. Um, the word angel means messenger, literally. The great uh, question here is, is the angel a supernatural angel, or is the angel a human messenger? 
and uh, we're going to look into this next week. It's very likely a human messenger that's going to take the message to the church. Um, so seven stars are seven angels, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So a church is a lampstand. What do you know? The bridge is the lampstand. What are lampstands supposed to do? Trick question. Okay. They're the structure for the light. And that's what the church is supposed to be about. A structure designed by God to bring light into the darkness. And uh, we were reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You probably heard me use this passage a lot, but I think this is God's strategy for the church. Jesus said to his disciples, the followers of Christ, you are the light of the world. John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. And now he's looking to his followers, and he's saying, "It's you are the light of the world. The city on a hill cannot be hidden. The idea of coming to a city at night is that you would be able to see it because of the lights. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. There's the idea of the lamp stand, because it's used for light. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. The whole idea is, there, is that the followers of Jesus are going to let their light shine. They're going to... They're going to manifest Jesus to their world, and the people are going to come to faith when they see the light. They're going to be attracted to the light, and they're going to shine so that people can see what they're, what Jesus is really like, who he is, and how to have a relationship with him. And eventually, they're going to be able to praise your Father in heaven. Or as Jesus said in John chapter 4, they're going to become true worshipers because the Father is seeking true worshipers. Um, so let's go uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Pretty well-known passage. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He says, I have the keys. All The Father has given all authority to the Son. That's why it's such a big deal who Jesus is when we get to the book of Revelation. It's the Father's desire that Jesus get all the glory. Jesus came to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And here it is. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's an action. It's about doing something. It's about going, sending, making disciples of all nations. I wonder how we are to go in 2013. Uh, it's, it can be translated as you go, when you go, since you're going, as you go out in your work week, as you go out on Monday morning, <coughs> as you go to your job, as you go to your family, as you go to your social occasions with your friends, make disciples of all nations as you go. Some of you maybe will go to the mission field. Some of you maybe will go on a short-term mission trip this year. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Christian baptism, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And he promised 
Here we, we see revelation. We see who what we see what's coming. We see who, who Jesus is, and He's going to be with us to the very end. He's the one who holds the keys. He's the one who wants us to reach out to lost people, to love them, forgive them, serve them, and ultimately share the message, to share the words of how to have a relationship, to share the gospel. The way we say it at the bridge, the bridge mission is to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. What are we going to do in 2013 to help people connect with God? We can do it at the bridge kids level. We can do it at student ministries level. We can do it at our adult level. We can reach out into our community. What will we do? I hope you will pray and ask God what he wants us to do. A lot of us know the story of the Titanic sunk on April 15th, 1912. Probably a lot of you have seen the movie or movies. There's probably four or five or six movies out there. Some of you have done a lot of reading about it. It's been on National Geographic, a lot of different things. 1,224 passengers on board. It was called the unsinkable ship. 1,502 people perished on the Titanic. The interesting thing is, only 711 were saved. 1,100, the, the lifeboats on board the Titanic would hold 1,178, but only 711 survived. Uh, some of the lifeboats were less than half full. Boat number cell seven held 65 people, but only 28 people were on board. Boat number five had 24 spaces unfilled. unfilled. Boat number nine filled only 26 of 65 spaces. Boat number one could accommodate 40 people, but there were only 12 on board. 40% of all the lifeboat spaces were unfilled. Why? And, um, investigators after the Titanic discovered uh, had a lot to do with misconceptions. One of the misconceptions was a part of the crew. When they filled the lifeboats on board, they didn't think the lifeboats would hold 65 people. And they didn't think that when they were in, this, on, in the water that they would withstand 65 people. And so the, the crew did not fill the lifeboats. Some of the people didn't board the lifeboats when they had the opportunity because they thought the ship was unsinkable. They had the wrong information. When it comes to our mission to help people connect with God, what kind of misconceptions do we have? Maybe we don't feel that the need is urgent. You know, they didn't, some of them didn't think the need was urgent on the Titanic. Um, maybe we don't really believe that people are dying and go, going to hell. Maybe we really don't get this is about life and death. Maybe we think somebody else is going to do it. The lifeboats kind of moved away from the Titanic and watched people freeze to death in life preservers. There was only like a very small number, four or five people, were helped out of the water onto lifeboats, even though there was quite a bit of room. Um, maybe we lack training. You know, those on the, on the crew didn't really understand 
what the life, how the lifeboats worked. They didn't understand if they were engineered properly. We lacked training and understanding. When you look back, somebody took the time to lead you to Christ. Somebody cared. Somebody spent time with you. Somebody knew enough to communicate the message to you so that you could place your faith in Christ. I'm really grateful somebody took time with me. I was a 25-year-old atheist, quite self-centered. I had a lot of the answers to life. And they listened. And they cared. And they spent time. And they asked me questions without making me feel like they were better or that they were somehow judging me. And they communicated the right information. They kept the gospel clear so that, I, so that it wouldn't be confusing to me. And I can say, it's made all the difference. It's changed my world totally. It's changed my family. It changed my marriage. I wouldn't be married today to Sue. I wouldn't have a great, fabulous marriage today, apart from Christ. I don't think I would have had two of my children. I don't think our marriage would have lasted until then, which meant I wouldn't have grandchildren or in-laws of, of our kids today. Think of the impact the gospel has made on your life or your family. What are we going to do with that? What will we do in 2013 to make a difference? Let's stand for prayer. Father, thank you for the book of uh, Revelation. And we are just reminded of Jesus and the urgency of his work and his message. We're thankful, God, that Jesus holds the keys. He's the one who has authority. And he is our Lord and our Master. And we love him and we choose to serve him. It's my prayer, Father, that you will sharpen our focus so that we can be the church that you want us to be in 2016.